is simply the realization that this letter, 2 Timothy, is essentially Paul's last word to the church. Written as it was from, from a prison cell in Rome, written to his trusted friend, to the one he called his true child in the faith. I think that through this letter, 2 Timothy, we get a glimpse of Paul at his most personal, at his most earnest. It's like we're coming alongside the old apostle on his deathbed. And what we receive here is, in essence, his last will and testament to the church. In this letter, Paul was passing, passing on the ministry to Timothy and encouraging him to take up the cause of the gospel, no matter the cost. That's what the letter's about, is what he's conveying to Timothy. And, and here at the beginning of chapter 4, we're going to look this morning, we come to the very heart of this ministry, to the crescendo to which Paul has been building. So please, if you can all open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in 2 Timothy. We're going to read chapters, or chapters, verses 1 through, or chapter 4, I'm doing well today, guys, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 together, and then we're going to focus on verse 2 for most of our time this morning. So again, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, though, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word this morning to us. We thank you for the, the words of the Apostle Paul and the Spirit, and your Spirit speaking through him to us, Lord. And we just ask you, God, that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning, that we would hear from you, that you would speak to each and every one of us, wherever we are and whatever we're going through. We know that your word is living and is active, Lord. And we ask, God, that you would pierce through, through maybe the darkness or the struggles or the wrestlings or even the, just the, the, uh, the numbness of life, God, and you would meet us this morning in your word. God, we thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us, that you've called us together to be a people. And, Lord, we just ask that you would be glorified in our midst and in our study of the word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a little bit of background here on this passage. We're kind of jumping into this letter towards the end. Paul knew that his time of departure was near. Unlike other letters that we have from him in the Old Testament, which were written, a lot of them were also written from captivity, but it was a first captivity, and they kind of brimmed with a sense that, hopeful sense that he was going to be released soon and be restored to the people. But, but this letter has a clear sense of finality to it. As he would even write in the following verses, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. So Paul was in prison, he knew his time was coming. But he was at peace with where God had him. He was not wrestling in this moments with, with remorse or regret, but actually what's interesting is when we see it, he's actually looking forward. He's looking forward both to his heavenly homecoming 
and, and for us, and for, importantly for us this morning, the ongoing work of ministry that Timothy was already engaged in would continue to be engaged in once he was gone. The old apostle knew that Timothy would continue living in perilous times. It's like he wrote earlier in chapter 3, he said to Timothy, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And again in verse 4, the passage we just read, he kind of revisited that and saying, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. So we can see Paul is nothing if not a realist here, right? He's not blowing smoke at Timothy. He's got a very real grasp of what's going on in the world, and he doesn't want Timothy to be caught off guard. But in light of all this and in light of his imminent departure, you know, in light of Paul's know that he's leaving, in light of the ministry that Timothy's engaged in, and most importantly, like we saw in the verses we read earlier, in light of God's presence and promise and Christ's promised return, Paul charged the young man once more, as he had countless times before, to preach the word. To be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and with teaching, to walk sober-mindedly, he says, in the midst of a generation without self-control, to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, to do the work of an evangelist and fulfill his ministry. So this is Paul's final charge to young Timothy, who probably wasn't that young by now. He's probably like in his 40s at this point in time. There's a lot going on in these five verses. There's actually nine imperatives that Paul gives Timothy in these verses, but I believe for our purposes this morning, we can sum up or paraphrase Paul's final charge to Timothy with the following statement. In all things, at all times, and in all ways, preach the word. Is it up there? Okay. In all things, and at all times, and in all ways, preach the word. And this solemn charge that Paul is giving Timothy here in this passage is reminiscent of the one of the commission that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 28 when he too was about to depart. And he said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Excuse me. Like the disciples with Christ, Timothy had walked alongside of and borne witness to much of Paul's life and ministry. And here, with Paul's last drops of ink, the apostle was charging him to carry on what he had learned from him. In verse 2, he writes, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching calling him here to continue making known the good news of Jesus Christ and all that it entails, all that it imparts for life and for godliness. In all things and at all times and in all ways, preach the word. And this morning I'd like for us to look at this final charge of Paul's to Timothy through, through the lens of two questions. First, what exactly was the word that Paul charged Timothy with preaching? What was this word? And second, what does the charge to preach the word mean for us today? 
beginning more narrowly with the content, we're going to work our way outward, and hopefully in the process is deepening our understanding of how we're called to preach this word. So first off, what, what was the word that Paul charged Timothy with preaching? He was calling Timothy to preach the good news of the word become flesh, like John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel. The word of Christ incarnate, the word of Christ crucified, the word of Christ risen, and the word of the king who had come to deliver his people from sin, from death. The word of a greater high priest, like we looked at last week, who had come and has now passed through the heavens to the right hand of the throne of God the Father. As the Apostle wrote some years before in 1 Corinthians 15, he said of this word, he said, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he buried and that he was raised the day in accordance with the scriptures. This word that Paul was calling Timothy to preach always began and ended with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the truth that humanity, although created by God and created for God, has since Adam been separated from God by sin. But that in his grace, God sent his son to restore and redeem man to himself. That through faith in Jesus, man might be saved from sin and restored to eternal fellowship with God through the power and the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, he kind of summed this up. In verses 1 and 2, he wrote, And you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But then in verses 4 and 5, he goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By grace you've been saved. And so Paul's calling him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to herald the good news that the Savior had come to set his people free from the bondage of sin, the fear of death, and the wiles of the enemy. Paul was calling him, but even as he was doing this, I mean, as he was doing this, Paul was also calling him to preach all of Scripture. He was saying, we preach this good news by preaching all of Scripture. He said that at the end of chapter 3, that all of Scripture, what we know as the Old Testament, now the New Testaments, have been breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in the growth, of God, growth in godliness and righteousness, so that all believers in Christ may be equipped for every good work to which God calls. All of Scripture preaches Jesus Christ. This is what Paul meant when years earlier in Acts 20, 27, he said to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. To put another way, he was calling Timothy to preach the word of Christ coming, the word of Christ incarnate, of Christ crucified and risen, the word of Christ present in the midst of his church, and the word of the promise of Christ's return. The word encompassed the history of God's work in redemption, as well as Scripture's teaching on everything from relationships to morality, to community, to ethics, to even how we engage civilly. The word, sorry, I lost my place here, excuse me, but the word that he's calling us to preach is everything that flows from this redemptive work 
of God in Christ Jesus. So in other words, Paul is charging Timothy to make known not only, not only what Christ has done, but also the effects, the ongoing ramifications of what God has done and how believers are called to walk in light of what God has now done in Christ. This is how Paul in Ephesians 2 could write in verses 8 and 9, he would declare saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. So no one can boast. It's the gospel. God has saved us. It's by grace alone that we are saved. There's nothing we can do that can add to our salvation. There's nothing we can do that can save us more. Excuse me again. But then he goes right on the very next verse. In verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In short, Paul was calling Timothy to preach the whole word of God, to proclaim the gracious and good gift of forgiveness, restoration, and salvation made available to us in Christ, and also to make it known that not only have we been saved by Christ from death, we've been saved unto new life. Not only have we been saved from sin, we've been saved unto righteousness. Not only are we saved from disobedience, we're saved unto obedience. Not only are we saved from the idolatry and love of self, we're saved unto true worship and the love of God and others. You guys still with me? It's okay, you can, you can amen or something. Let me know you're still here. Um, so, you see, so this is the word that Paul was entrusting to Timothy. All of scripture which preaches Christ, his coming, his, his work, his power. But now I want to take a look at that second lens we talked about. What does this charge to Timothy to preach the word mean for us today? Earlier in this letter, Paul urged Timothy in, the, in chapter 2, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's final charge here, although issued to Timothy, did not terminate on him, but was a clarion call to the faithful of his generation, that which followed immediately after the apostles, and has since been passed on to every subsequent generation of Christians, right down to our very own. Just as Timothy was called to preach the word of Jesus Christ to be ready in season and out of season, so are we. But what does that look like for us to preach the word in all things, at all times, and in all ways? To answer this question, we're going to go back and we're going to go and we're going to look at three distinct yet intertwined aspects of how we're called to preach. That's gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, and gospel action. So we're looking at gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, and gospel action. The first aspect is what we think of most when we think of preaching, and with good reason, is what we say about Jesus, be it from a pulpit like I am right now, or on a mission field, or we've had teams over the last year or two, um, on a blog, on Facebook, over coffee, or when we tuck our kids in at night. Gospel proclamation is communicating in verbal language the the timeless truth, the beauty, the, the wonder of Jesus Christ. By means of gospel proclamation, we tell of all that God has graciously and lovingly done 
in Christ Jesus and all that it means for us and how we're called to walk in light of this glorious news. Through gospel proclamation, we recognize the fact that we can't preach the word without using words. We can't communicate the grace of God, the love of God, the invitation of God without opening our mouths and speaking, speaking with awestruck wonder the message we have been given to share. However, when it comes to proclamation, I think there are There are three peculiar words that are here in verse 2, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, that are often misunderstood and misapplied, and, and as such can cause us to lean into one of two unhealthy directions, either towards aggression and aggressiveness, or towards passivity and withdrawal. Some of us read a passage like this and think to ourselves, all right, I gotta be ready to challenge. I gotta be ready to take down anybody who dares stray from the path of Christian orthodoxy, as you know, I and my favorite theologian on Twitter sees it. Okay? When asked if we're being too harsh, we simply point to this passion and say, but look, this is, I'm just preaching the word in season, out of season. Paul says I gotta be ready to rebuke. Right? We all know these people. Some of us are probably we might be those people, right? You with me? Meanwhile, others, we tend to read the same passage by way of the old axiom, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Which isn't bad in of itself, and we're actually going to touch on that. Sometimes we read it more like this, preach the gospel always, and if absolutely necessary, there's no way to avoid it or get around it, and God has spoken audibly from heaven, use words. Okay, good. I am joking. I'm glad you're laughing. Excellent. But let's be honest. Today, in our culture, we tend towards nothing if not towards extremes, right? And, and the advocacy of social media, of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, has only served to exacerbate this tendency in us. If you get on, so on Twitter or Facebook in the last 24 hours, I'm sure you can find examples of both. One hand is fire and brimstone, calling out people who don't know one another. On the other, other side, it's kittens and rainbows and, you know, silence. However, I don't think either of these two tendencies capture what the apostle had in mind. Rather, the word of Jesus Christ, which Paul charged Timothy and by way of spiritual inheritance, us, with preaching, this word neither condemns the sinner, nor does it condone sin. Okay? Neither condemns nor does it condone sin, but rather it reproves or a way we can look, translate that word today would be it convinces, it convicts the heart. Think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking on that road. They're disheartened. Jesus has just been crucified. Everything they'd hoped in had come crashing down. And this guy walks up next to them and he starts walking and asks them why they're so upset. And, he said, and they say, Our, you know, the Savior the Messiah has been crucified. And, and then this guy starts taking, him, taking them through the scriptures saying, look and how all these things had to happen to the Messiah. And then they get to a dinner table, and when that man breaks bread, he vanishes, and they realize, that was Jesus. And this is what they said. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scripture? As they encountered the living word on the road to Emmaus, and as he opened the Old Testament scriptures to them, their hearts were being reproved, convicted. They were, they were burning within them. 
but it also, but the word also rebukes, or it confronts. It can be an affront to the mind. I'm thinking, another another story from Jesus' life is the story of Nicodemus. You guys know Nicodemus. He kind of came to Jesus in the middle of the night because he didn't want to be seen coming, and he has questions about Jesus' teaching, and Jesus starts to tell him about how he has to be born again, how he has to be born anew, and Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This man, Nicodemus, was a teacher of the people, and he couldn't grasp what Jesus was saying in that moment about being born of the Spirit, about regeneration and new life. His mind was kind of like, like he just didn't, it just didn't compute. He's like, I can't go, what, what are you saying? It, can, it confronts these false ideas we have in our mind, these things that we've built up. The word confronts those things. It rebukes the mind. And third, the word exhorts or it urgently calls the body. It calls us to action. And I was trying to think of an example of this, and, and I was drawn to the story of Zacchaeus in the gospel. You guys are f- familiar with Zacchaeus, right? He was a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he? So Zacchaeus climbed up in a sycamore. Well, I'm not going to keep going. Anyways, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, so he gets up in a tree, and Jesus comes to him and says, hey, I'm going to come to your house. We're going to do lunch. But the thing about Zacchaeus is he was a tax collector. He was a fraud. He was a swindler. He had no problem taking money from his friends, from his neighbors. Um, He was serving an occupying force. He was not the kind of guy you'd think is going to have Jesus over for dinner. But throughout the course of that dinner, throughout the course of that meal, by the end of it, Zacchaeus stands up and he says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, anything... I restore it fourfold. Through that encounter, Zacchaeus was was he he went he he was moved to action. It wasn't just his heart that burned within him. It wasn't just his mind that was confronted. His very life began to move in a new direction. There was an exhortation taking place. So all this to say, we don't we're not necessarily called as Christians to be outspoken arbiters of right and wrong. That's not what preaching the word is. We're not called to police both church and culture, but neither are we called to be silent wallflowers for Jesus, hoping that somehow through our silence we'll lead people to Christ and call errant believers back to orthodoxy. Instead, we are called to tell, to proclaim a better story. A better story. A story of a divine king who left his throne to give his life for his people. It's a story of mercy and justice, of life and love, of grace and peace. We are called to preach the good news of Jesus Christ in all things and in all ways and at all times. For this news, this proclamation, is the only means we have of convicting hearts, confronting minds, and calling the body of Christ and the body of, and believers to action. You guys with me? It's a gospel proclamation. The second aspect we want to look at this morning of our charge to preach the word is through what I'm calling gospel demonstration. I'm sure I didn't coin this, but I'm not sure where it came from. But gospel demonstration, that is, we are called to preach Christ in our lives. <clears throat> While words are essential, we talked about that, they cannot stand alone. We cannot expect people to take our gospel proclamation seriously if they don't see the truth of it playing out in our lives. I love how the British missiologist, the late British missiologist, Leslie Newbigin, once put it. 
He says, we are called to live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. We are called to live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. How believers live together, how we treat one another, how we care for one another bears witness to the reality of Christ in our midst. It doesn't really matter how much truth we can spout in a debate or online or whatever if our lives and our fellowship remains unaffected or unmoved by that truth. We preach the word by gospel demonstration when others see the fruit of the gospel at work in our midst, both individually and corporately. When they see the gospel of grace giving birth to a community of grace. When they see the love of God made manifest in the people of God. In the book Everyday Church, um, pastor and author Tim Chester wrote the following. The Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. We are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful word that takes men and women who, are lovers of, who were lovers of self and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into people who love God and love others. So some questions we can ask ourselves when we think about this aspect of preaching is, do our lives demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do our relationships with other believers demonstrate the great love that that God has poured out on us? Does our church, do our communities demonstrate the wonder of his grace and mercy? Jesus said to his disciples in, in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we preach by gospel proclamation using our mouths and typewriters and whatever it might be. Typewriters? Sorry. Whoa. <clears throat> Keyboards, smartphones, uh, you know, whatever. Voice text, I don't know. Um, probably not a typewriter, unless you're a reporter in the 50s. Um, by using our mouths to communicate the word of Jesus Christ. We preach by gospel demonstration. We answer this charge by gospel demonstration, allowing our lives and communities to testify to the word of God's presence in our midst. Excuse me. <clears throat> All right, there we are. And lastly, we preach through or by engaging in. Sorry. <clears throat> I got it back yet? Sorry, guys, my voice is going again. And lastly, we preach through or by engaging in gospel action or gospel-motivated action. That is, we preach the word of Christ with our hands and feet. Gospel action, although not exclusively missional, tends to be more outwardly focused, practiced in in the love of neighbor, in, in serving the poor, in standing up for the oppressed and the defenseless. This aspect of preaching recognizes that a gospel preached in word that is not also preached in deed is no gospel at all. James puts it this way in his letter in three different places. He first says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Then he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. 
like gospel demonstration. Gospel action puts the word of Christ on display, but it does so in such a way that what is seen in the church, in our fellowship and our love and our care for one another, is felt and experienced outside the church. The ancient Roman Empire, Empire, the ancient Roman Emperor Julian, who ruled several decades after Constantine, he hoped to win the empire back to the worship of the old pagan gods. To history, he's known as Julian the Apostate. He, we have some of his letters that have been handed down through history, and one he wrote to a high priest of Galatia, a pagan high priest in Galatia, and he spoke of this very type of action when he said, it is disgraceful when the impious Galileans, that's the name he had for Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. So this ancient pagan emperor looked at the church, how it engaged with its neighbors, even with its opponents, and was embarrassed that his paganism didn't measure up. He understood what a powerful witness this was, the testimony of the gospel, of the news that these Christians were proclaiming. Even though he rejected it, he rejected that word. He couldn't help but feel it. See, gospel action appreciates that a life lived for Christ means a life lived for others. That we have been called not we've been called to a stewardship of God's grace that He has lavished on us. And that this role is not a miserly, but it's a generous one. A role in which we are called to freely pour out love on others, just as God's love has been freely poured out on us. You guys still with me? And what's more, throughout the ages, it's been the gospel action of countless Christian witnesses that have seen some of society's most evil institutions undone before the power and the witness and the testimony of the cross. It was the gospel action of an ancient monk named Telemachus who who finally helped bring an end to the bloody gladiatorial combats in ancient Rome that was still taking place after Christianity had become the religion of the day. It was the gospel action of a parliamentarian in England named William Wilberforce that helped bring an end to the British slave trade and one day an end to slavery throughout the entire empire. And it was the gospel action and even martyrdom of a minister from Georgia and a myriad of others who began to see the cause of racial justice and equality roll across this nation like a mighty stream. In addition to that, it's been the gospel action of saints innumerable down through the years that have seen the rise of everything from hospitals to orphanages to shelters to soup kitchens and an incalculable number and amount of other ministries that have reached out and served the hurting, the lost, the broken, and the least of these in our midst and around the globe, making known the name and the word of Jesus Christ. We are called to preach by gospel action because it takes the word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, and makes it visible, makes it tangible to the world. So in all things, at all times, and in all ways, preach the word. It's the word of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he sets us free from the bondage of sin and death and gives us a better story to tell. 
It's the word that gathers us and makes us into a new people, a new people who put on display the loving work of the Spirit in our midst. And we're called to preach the word, a word that calls us to action, bearing it indeed to a world that so desperately needs it. I love how um, Jeff Vanderstel, who's an ex-29 pastor out west somewhere, I'm not sure if it's California, Oregon, somewhere out there. Pacific's all the same to me. He says, everywhere we go, whatever we do, we are to be missionaries sent by Jesus to love like Jesus, overcome sin like Jesus, proclaim the gospel like Jesus, and see people's lives changed by the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Amen? In all things, at all times, in all ways, preach the word. This morning, as we close our time together, we once again, we come to the Lord's table, as we do every week at New City, and there could be no better way for us to conclude our time together, because everything we've talked about this morning hangs solely on what this table represents. This meal is a picture of the very word that we have been entrusted with preaching. And, and because of what it represents, this is the only ground, the only means by which we have for preaching it. The broken bread reminds us that it was Christ's body that was broken for us on the cross. And the cup reminds us of Christ's blood that was poured out for our sins so we might have forgiveness. This table before us proclaims our better story, our better word. This table is why we are a people that is drawn from different tribes and tongues and backgrounds and neighborhoods, upbringings. And this table is why we are called to go, bearing the good news of what it represents to a world in both word and deed. So if you're a believer here this morning, then please come celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then I just want to encourage you to refrain from participating in the Lord's Supper at this time. But if anything from this morning's service, from the worship, from the word this morning has, has resonated with you, then I encourage you just to, there's some prayers in the city life you can pray over. You can grab myself after the service or Pastor Ryan. We'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, to tell you a little more about about, about this word, about this person, Jesus Christ. The way we take communion here at New City is we form two lines in the middle. Servers will be up front with the bread and the juice. <clears throat> you take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. We also have some gluten-free bread that will be here in the middle. So I'm going to pray as the worship team comes forward. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning we are humbled <clears throat> that you have entrusted us with the word of your son that you have called us to make Jesus known Lord that you have said that you have poured your love and your grace out in us and, at, and called us to go forth showing grace and love to our neighbors to our co-workers to those that don't know you Lord and I just pray God that you would use us as make us witnesses to the work that you are doing in our midst, Lord, that we would be a people who proclaim your word, who demonstrate 
the work of the gospel in our midst and who are moved to action on behalf of those who can't maybe defend themselves or can't stand up for themselves or whatever that might look like, that our lives would be so transformed by this word that we couldn't help but share it. Lord, we're overwhelmed by your grace and your love that you would give your only son, that he would die on a cross for our sins, Lord. And yet we rejoice that he was raised again from the dead, Lord, that he stands or he sits at the right hand of the throne in heaven that we may boldly approach for forgiveness, for help in time of need, Lord. So God, we just thank you and we ask that you would be uh, glorified in our midst this morning. Amen.